Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role that joy plays in our own journey. Hello and welcome to episode 63. This is Paula Jenkins, a life and career coach and host of Jumpstart Your Joy. This week, I'm excited to have author and former Walt Disney executive Mark Jaffe on the show. He and I talk about his new book, Suitcase of Happiness, which is all about how to achieve and enjoy your happiest life. We also take a deeper look at how joy and happiness have been impacted and how we can all get on the road to healing after the election of Donald Trump in this last week. First, I want to give you a warm welcome and say thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow along with this episode, you can get all of the show notes and find out more at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 63. If you want to subscribe, Jumpstart Your Joy is on all of the major podcasting syndication spots, which include iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Player FM. If you head over to one of those and hit that subscribe button, please also leave a review. I love to hear from you guys. You can also leave comments and engage in more conversation over on the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 63. I do have an exciting announcement. If you want to start a podcast of your very own, I have a couple of resources for you. I'm offering a five-day podcasting fundamentals class that starts with a reference sheet with all of the hardware, software, and services that you need to know about to launch your show. You can find a link to this on my website. You just look for the Start a Podcast button on the right-hand side, and that will get you started. And now, without further ado, the interview with Mark. Well, welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. Today, I have an interview with Mark Jaffe, who is the author of Suitcase of Happiness. I am so happy to have you here, Mark. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. There's nothing more fun than talking about joy and happiness, so it's great to be here. (laughs) Yeah, um, and I I wholeheartedly agree. I'm so glad that we've connected. Would you like to share um, what were your early sparks of joy growing up? Well, I, I was blessed. I mean, while I wasn't born into a family of a great amount of money, I was born into a family with a great amount of love. And my parents treated uh, my brother and I as their most important priorities. And we just got the most incredible foundation for achieving happiness later in our lives. We always had dinner together, which I continued with my children. We went on amazing trips together, but were just amazing because it was the closeness of the four of us. And there was just so much love and and support and guidance. And to me, you know, parents, no matter what their economic status, can always give that to their children. And I was blessed to have had it. Mm, I really like that too. Because yeah, there's something magical about, I mean, really, honestly, that dinner, because it opens up a space for discussion. It you know, it it means that you make the time for each other. And and I feel like sometimes when that's missing, then, you know, children don't get into the habit of speaking, I mean, to adults, but also to their own family. Right. And there there comes a a place of, of closeness and also having the comfort 
of speaking whatever you want. No judgment. I mean, I, and there were a lot of times my parents could have had judgment, justifiably, not in my favor, but there was never judgment. There was just counsel and advice and suggestions. And, you know, that's the way that I raised my children as well. Really like that too. Yeah. Especially the piece about a non-judgment space that it's that mm-hmm. we're sharing ideas. We're, we're talking about our day. If we don't want to talk about our day, we can talk about something else, but like, right. but that it's just that space and we all have a voice and it's kind of of equal weight, if you will. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, and so do you want to share what it is that, that you do now and, and maybe a little bit about how you got to where you are? Cause I think that path is also, it's fascinating. Sure. So, I mean, you know, I've had this amazing uh, career where I used to run Walt Disney Records and put out Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and Little Mermaid and, you know, focused on happiness and, and creating happiness for others, you know, very, very early on. And, and then my career's morphed into a couple of different places. I started two enterprise software companies. But this whole concept of happiness started for me very early on because I was extraordinarily unhappy. I mean, I had no friends. No, I had one friend, but he wasn't really well-liked either, except by me. And I decided that as a child that I wanted to be happy and I wanted to be, and to me, happiness was to be accepted by a group. So at 13 years old, I found a group that would accept me and the price of admission was smoking cigarettes on the curb during lunch at the local 7-Eleven. So I did that and got involved with basically substance abusers. And I was so thrilled to be part of a group, but I still wasn't happy. And at that time, I, this is in junior high school. I mean, I, I don't think I've told my kids that story until they got much older, but, and then my parents moved to California when I was 15. And at that moment I said, now I could be happy. Now I could find the right people. I could be popular. I could figure out what it takes to have joy in my life. And I studied the popular kids because that to me was happiness to have this friend group of friends that were nice people that were really enjoying life. And I realized the few things it took to be that person. It was confidence. It was a sense of humor. It was a positive view on the life. And so I moved to California, quickly got a group of friends. But the most poignant moment that occurred was a year after I moved here. I was in this class called Awareness and Living which, by the way, can only be offered in California during the (laughs) 1970s, right? A whole class devoted to awareness and living. I mean, what were they thinking? But it was really about your personal growth and development. And one of the exercises one day was that you were assigned a random person in the room. They didn't know you had been assigned to them. And it was your job to write what you thought of them. And it had to be from the heart. And it had to be something that you truly believed. And it had to be constructed. So you couldn't just say someone's a jerk because that doesn't do anything for them. So, of course, in high school, everyone's so petrified of what people think of them. I get mine. I I still don't know who it came from, but it seemed like it was from somebody who didn't know me that well, who only had a perception of me. And what they wrote was, you see the world through rose-colored glasses. Do we live in the same expletive world? Mm. At that moment, I realized I had transformed myself. Mm. I had (laughs) really become a happy person. Because I projected happiness, even as part of my being when I wasn't even trying. And that's why this person had this perception of me. And I've been working on being happier and happier and creating this enduring sense of lasting happiness my entire life since. I love it. (laughs) I love it because, I mean, really the quote that even started this show. So listeners, you know, longtime listeners know it, but it's 
that joy is a choice and that we must keep choosing it every day. And I think that ties directly into what you're saying there around happiness, because it's, it is something that we have to mindfully decide, you know, whether it's, whether it's in the awareness of living class, or it's just in the awareness of being alive, we have this choice to kind of go towards and gravitate towards happiness or joy or whatever it is that you might want to call that that mood. And I loved in your book that you have this awesome kind of hierarchy of what is happiness and joy and exultation and all that. That's very cool. Well, you know, Henry David Thoreau said that man is the artificer of his own happiness. Mm-hmm. You know, it does, happiness doesn't come to those who passively wait for it, just like anything else in life doesn't come to those who passively wait for it. I mean, we have to, we have to choose it, make a conscious choice to choose it. And there's a woman named Agnes Repelier who had a quote also that just so resonates for me. She wrote, it's not easy to find happiness in ourselves and it's impossible to find it elsewhere. Mm. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Because it really is within. I know that you shared a beautiful story kind of that relates to this choice and kind of the sense that that happiness and joy are not necessarily something that they aren't necessarily a given that we have to be mindful about creating them and choosing them in how you named your book this the suitcase of happiness do you want to share that piece because i thought that was it's a beautiful and kind of deep way of opening up the rest of your your book well it, it's actually a, a a very unhappy story but it's so illustrative right. of what you spoke about, there was a couple in Paris, France named um, Jeffrey and Veronique de Bougie, and, and they really had that family that we all want so badly. It, they had two children, incredibly close, had dinners together, incredible experience together, so much joy in that family. You know, it's kind of the, the go-to family. Whenever you wanted to have a great evening, you'd have dinner with them because they were always just so happy together. And one night, uh, Veronique is out in Paris, and she's at a local cafe, and unfortunately, it was one of the cafes targeted by the terrorists in November of 2015, and and she was killed. And three days later, her husband was giving her eulogy, which you can actually still see on YouTube because of the notoriety of the event. And he spoke, if you've lost someone, you know what he's saying. I mean, in the moments after someone passes away, the, the moments are like eternity. How do you make it from... 301 in the afternoon to 302 in the afternoon. It mm-hmm. just seems so impossibly difficult. And he said the only way that his family was to, to, to make it to the next moment, to survive, to give this eulogy was because his wife and, and their mother had given them this unbelievable gift of a de bonheur, which mm-hmm. in English means a suitcase of happiness. And it wasn't a, a real suitcase. It was a metaphorical suitcase. It was a place where she put all the incredible happy moments that they experienced together. She collected them. She surrounded herself with them and in turn surrounded her family with them. So their happiness was almost like a living, breathing organism in which they resided. And it became their reality. Their day-to-day reality were all these incredible moments that they had and they continued to accumulate and assemble together which had always been my notion of how I had maintained happiness in my life. And it resonated so much with me to see that there was someone literally on the other side of the world who had done the same thing. But Mm -hmm. what resonated even more was the fact that that legacy she created gave them, her husband and her family, so much comfort 
during that time of intense trial and tribulation, that it was her legacy to them. It was her gift to them. And for me, that was the reason I wrote this book, because I, mm-hmm. I, I really have been a happy person my entire life. I mean, I've had tremendous, tremendous tragedy, which I talk about in the book, but yeah. I've been a happy person. And I wanted to give that gift to my kids. And I have this amazingly close relationship with them. I mean, we see each other once or twice a week. We talk on the phone all the time. And they're in their 20s when they also make a choice whether they still want their parents to be active parts in their lives. But I still couldn't say, hey, how about if we have lunch? We'll talk about how you could be happy. It just isn't the kind of conversation you can just bring up and, <laughs> and cover in that way. And so as part of my legacy to them, I decided to write this book. And it was just, you know, it was like being hit over the head to see that the same woman in Paris, France, had used her suitcase of happiness in exactly the same way. And there is the depth, you know, kind of holding in the balance, the fullness of our humanity, I guess, is what that would be, is that we have intense happiness and we can also experience intense sorrow. But what, there's something so beautiful and... Mm -hmm. I don't know, something so present about someone who can see, okay, this is a really joyful moment. I'm going to soak this up. And this one, this is another really like happy moment. You know, my child's belly laugh is (laughs) one of those that's like, Mm -hmm. you just want to live in that belly laugh because it's so awesome. And so I put that, yeah, I, I don't know that I had had the framework to call it a suitcase of happiness, but now of course I do. And so, yeah, that goes into the suitcase too. And really being joyful, but also I know you bring up gratitude as one of the pathways to happiness, putting a little bit of gratitude around that. Like that was a really good moment and I'm going to remember it. Well, a lot of it is about living in the present moment. So here we are on this call talking about happiness. You may have had a very unpleasant call right before this where you found out some bad news that you didn't want to hear. And so that could be in your mind. But now this call's in your mind. Now you and I are interact, and it's really kind of lifting my spirits to hear how you feel about joy and happiness. And so why would I let this moment not happen and not give me the fullness that it is? Because you or I had received an unpleasant phone call just prior to us connecting. And so the present moment is what we have. And it's really about experiencing that present moment in all its fullness. You know, there is a, um, there's a prayer. I mean, I'm a Jewish and in the Jewish religion, there's a prayer called the Shekhiano. And basically what it says, I think it's very applicable, even whether or not you believe in God. But the prayer basically thanks God for bringing us to this moment, for allowing us to experience what we are experiencing right now. And it's an absolutely amazing thought that we didn't have to make it to this moment. I didn't have to have the opportunity to speak with you, but I have, and I'm thankful and I'm grateful. I like that. I like that. I will, and I'll link that prayer up. What? There's something really intense and purposeful about being right in the moment and allowing this thing to be whatever it is and allowing mm-hmm. ourselves to feel whatever we feel right now, which is yeah, I mean, as we got on <laughs> this call, we were both very excited and very happy to speak to each other. And so I think there's something nice about honoring that, like that this can be this full experience right now. And mm-hmm. and I guess for listeners, honoring that for yourself, if there's something you know really hard in this moment, honoring it and letting it, I mean, hopefully not while you're listening right this second, but in your day, if there's something hard that's really hard, you know, allow yourself to cry, allow yourself to feel it. But then as you go into the next moment, is there something else that comes up? About six months ago, I was walking in downtown Los Angeles, and we were going to a lecture, 
And we're in this brand new park called uh, Grant Park, which has one of those fountains that in the summertime you can walk into, you're in about three, four, five inches of water, and there's fountains spraying all over the place. Well, of course, you know, at this point it was a cold, cold, chilly evening and you wouldn't be doing that. But there was this guy in this electric wheelchair doing figure eights in this fountain. It was a large fountain. He's doing figure eights in the fountain in his electric wheelchair, just tilting his head back and laughing hysterically. And so, of course, you know, my girlfriend's like, what? you know, you can't talk to him. I said, I have to talk to him. So I, talk, I, I stopped this guy and I talked to him and I, I looked at him and I said, I couldn't help but admiring how much fun you were having in that fountain. And he said, I chose to have fun in that fountain. As a matter of fact, look at me. You could tell I'm homeless. You could tell my clothes haven't been washed in a while. I'm in an electric wheelchair, which means I'm permanently disabled. I won't get into it, but life hasn't been kind to me. And I wallowed in that for so long. But two years ago, I decided I was going to be happy. And the Central Library is two blocks away, and I looked up all these books on happiness, and I decided to implement a lot of what they told me to do. I even went to a judge, and I changed my name. And he gave me a card, and his name was Happy H. Happy. He legally changed his name, and you can imagine what the H stands for. It's the third happy. And he goes, I've lived a life of happiness for two years. It occurred to me that what he had done in that moment in the fountain, I couldn't have done. That moment of joy he created for himself in three to four inches of water on a chilly evening, I could not have created, but he could because he was in an electric wheelchair. Because he was disabled and couldn't walk, he was able to create a moment of happiness I could never create because I did walk and I wouldn't want my feet to get wet on a chilly evening. And I thought, how amazing is it that by choosing to create happiness, by accepting your difficulty or whatever is troubling you or whatever has impeded you in the past from being happy, he was able to create a moment of happiness that an able-bodied person would be unable to have. Yes. (laughs) Well, and there's such nuance and depth there that Thank you for for pointing out that it is something that unless you were in his position, in many ways, you couldn't have created that moment. I think that's something really important for all of us to soak in is that there are things and times and people where we may think that they are, I'll use the term, you know, outside or an other. But in fact, they are doing things that we can't do because we see things very differently. Oh, absolutely. And there are so many of those stories. I mean, with Veterans Day, I recently attended a talk by a veteran who talked about these horrible injuries that happened to people Mm -hmm. in, in the Iraq and Iran war and what they're doing to lead happy lives. But for the majority of us, we don't have those permanent disabilities. What we have really is varying degrees of emotional anguish. And we allow ourselves, and we shouldn't, but we do, I do, We allow ourselves to be swallowed up by this rising tide of emotional anguish when in reality, it's just a small or mid-sized ripple of stress that are totally disproportionately disturbing this large pond of pleasure that we could have in the present moment. You know, it's kind of like when you're playing that endless loop of something that's happened in the past. Oh, I should have done this. Oh, I should have done this. I wish I could have done this. And then an hour goes by and you still can't fall asleep. Well, that's already happened. The, the question is, what's in the present moment that you could do to move forward? And it's a pow- that's a really powerful question. There's probably a lot in there around 
whatever's eating you up, is there a piece of forgiveness or just letting it go and letting it be whatever it is, but also giving yourself the permission to be in this moment, whatever this moment is for you, especially if you're lying in your bed, because that really is the worst when you're letting your, your, your thoughts just churn and get eaten up over something that's happened because I've surely been there. It does take some mindfulness and some purpose, like purpose around it to make that a possibility. The thing is, is it takes acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think that happiness can exist side by side with our unhappiness. And, and often, you know, acceptance is really the key to giving us permission to move forward. I mean, in the book, I describe how, you know, this woman who I was deeply in love with, um, tragically committed suicide and and how I was just enveloped in this unbelievable fog and darkness that no matter what I did, I just couldn't escape it. It just surrounded me kind of like, you know, that Charlie Brown character was that dark cloud mm-hmm. around him at all, at all times. And I, I couldn't get out of it. And I'm talking to this one guy who's just this brilliant, you know, business coach and life coach. And he said, you know what, Mark, why don't you in a quiet moment by yourself out loud, Tell yourself how miserable you are. Talk about how unhappy you are. Talk about how you feel so bad and so dark and you don't know how to get out of it. I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And then what do I do? He goes, that's it. I go, what do you mean that's it? He goes, that's all you have to do. Just do that over and over and over. And trust me, over time, you will begin to feel better. So I did it. And the first week I thought he was crazy. And the second week, I noticed like there's a slight crack of light in the darkness. Mm-hmm. And over time, what I realized was I was truly just accepting her passing. That's all that just happened. And once you accept, you give yourself permission to move forward. And today, you know, five years later, acceptance has given me the ability to smile when I hold on to the memory of the love we had and, and to simultaneously live with the pain of her passing. Acceptance is just so important. Before um, we got on the phone, we were talking about the presidency and, and you had mentioned how, you know, it's been so difficult for many people who didn't want this particular outcome. And what do we do about it? What does someone do about it when you didn't want this outcome? I mean, I think that it was so polarizing that 48% of the population was going to wake up the day after election day, stunned and confused and actually feeling like something had died. Because until you start to accept, I think something does die. And what dies is your sense of hope, your hope for your present, your hope for your future and your hope for your children's future. But once you accept, you realize that the sun is going to rise and it has risen. You know, the last few mornings, Eckhart Tolle wrote that once we stop struggling against what is real and unchangeable, other feelings are able to become a reality, such as happiness and inner peace. And even George Orwell, whose book 1984 was the most dystopian view of the world, which no matter what side of the political spectrum you are on, it's not going to get that bad said that happiness can only exist in acceptance. And, you know, many people said, how do I get past this? How do I get past these, these feelings of incredible despair? And I think it is through acceptance. I mean, you know, I've been watching the protests of the last two nights all across the country. And I think, you know, there are two ways to go out there on the streets. One is to say, I'm going to protest. This is horrible. Let's get rid of this guy. Let's try to overturn the election. 
And that is an acceptance. I mean, that's not going to happen. We're in a democracy for a reason. The Mm -hmm. other type of protester went out there and said, okay, I accept that the person I didn't like got elected, but I want my voice to be heard. I want him to know that there's another agenda out there that he's going to have to contend with. And this is the first step in my plan moving forward, given the fact that he's president, to make sure that what's important to me gets heard and and hopefully gets thought about in a meaningful and proactive way. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, are the people who have accepted the reality and are moving forward. And with that acceptance comes some degree of control and permission to be happier in other parts of your life. I think the really amazing thing is, is both, like you said, leaving space for both the feelings of being frustrated or dismayed or, or whatever that emotion may be for you as you look at what's happened in the presidential election, but also knowing there's other things possible in that moment, that you don't have to just stay with that that one feeling. You can hold two feelings at the same time. So you could mm-hmm. be upset and, in fact, joyful about something else, perhaps, but you can also be upset. But you could be resolved to then take some action based on what you believe. And even more than that, I don't remember, I think it's a Mother Teresa quote, but something around, they asked if she would march against something. And I think she said, no, I will only march for something. Like there's that oh, really powerful, that. <laughs> yeah, there's that really powerful stance about putting your energy towards something instead of getting stuck in the past. And Byron Katie would call it painful thoughts. Like if you already know what your reality is, Reality is this person won an election. The painful thought that it didn't happen or that I wish it hadn't happened, you can get stuck in that. But if you move forward with it and stand for something, I think what you said is so amazing that we can then take the responsibility and say, well, this is the reality now. And here's what I want. And here's what I want to stand for as we move forward together, you know, been, <laughs> to use the Hillary I mean, word, but yeah, together. Well, no, that that is the truth. I mean, we are in one country. You know, all these statements of reconciliation by both sides ring true, mm-hmm. uh, in particular because of one thing that I remember that's just a hallmark of how I think that was said by the Buddha, where he said, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. <laughs> it's not going to happen. What's going to happen is you're only hurting yourself. And that whole concept about I'm only going to march for something is just so true. Because there's healing involved with that, too. Is Then you can put your energy towards the things that are still possible instead of the things that are currently not possible. Um, right. And also letting your own happiness lead you there. Like, what is it that you want in this more perfect union? Well, you know, that is actually such a key part of having a choice and a key part of the premise behind the book, which is really about the four laws of focus, because what you focus on, you find. And that's Mm -hmm. the first law of focus. If you're going to focus on waking up in the morning and looking for what's happy in your life, you'll find that. If you're going to focus on your boss is going to give you a hard time again, and that client is such a drag to deal with, and you've got to have an hour with him. Well, guess what? You're going to find your boss giving you a hard time and you're going to find that client being incredibly difficult. But if you're focused on other things that make you happy, like your lunch hour with your coworkers or that person that always smiles and greets you every morning and how it just warms your heart to walk into the building that day, that's Mm -hmm. what you're going to find. And so what you focus on, you find. And like my story of my childhood, what you focus on and what I focused on as a child was being happy and being popular and getting a large circle of friends becomes real. And eventually 
you become what you focus on, just as I became a happy person because for a number of years in my teenage years, that's what I focused on. And I think it's entirely possible and it's really the mechanism by which you exact that choice for yourself to be happy or to find joy. I really like those those four laws of focus. The law of attraction or whatever <laughs> kind of is a popular thing right now or has been. Mm-hmm. I, I think this really seems more tangible, more real in some ways, because it really is about when you turn your attention to something, then that's more of what you see. It was even said a long time ago, there was a, a guy named, a philosopher named Adam Smith, who wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, literally 250 years ago. And he said that the number one thing that all people want is to be beloved. And he said the way to be beloved is to be lovely. And when you think about it, you've got to actively become what you want, and then you've actually got to focus on getting more of what you've become. You know, where the law of attraction sometimes falls short is it it kind of just says, you know, just become that and, and you'll attract that. It will come to you. But I don't believe that. I think you've got to go out and seek it and you've got mm-hmm. to find it because what you focus on, you find and you've got to continue to focus on and finding it. And some people say, oh, it just sounds like so much work. Well, you know, <laughs> when I was three years old, I always thought it was a lot of work to brush my teeth in the morning. Like, oh, every day I have to do this? Over time, I it becomes second nature. No one ever thinks about, am I going to brush my teeth this morning? As an adult, you realize that's what you got to do and you do it. And it becomes part of your livelihood, just like exercise or whatever you find important becomes part of your livelihood. And I think the dividends from focusing on joy and happiness are just so massive that I don't know how you could not make that part of your daily life. Yes. And the nuance there of that you're putting the action or you're you're actively seeking and acting towards the thing I think is that difference between the attraction slash manifestation piece and then this, which is, no, you actually are putting your attention towards it and acting towards things that make you happy. In your book, you weave in these this idea of legacy. That word keeps coming up on the show. I love it. I mean, Laura Sims talks about it. She's a life coach. And then Chris Gillibo talks about it, who, you know, wrote Born for This. Uh, and I'll link those up. But like, What I really love about the way you talk about legacy is that it can be something that's even in the most simple of moments. Like it doesn't have to be this grandiose, like, hey, there's my name on a building, which is lovely. Kind of like those tiny moments of happiness that you can put in your suitcase. But these legacy things can also be tiny moments that you get, that you realize were so chock full of juicy goodness. I know you told a story in the book about a train ride where you had one of those moments. I don't know if you want to retell that because I thought it was awesome. I remember it was about 10 years ago and I was coming back from a client in San Diego and I decided to take a Metrolink train back to Los Angeles. And it's these long double-decker cars. I mean, it, it feels like it's 150 feet long. I mean, it's just these massive cars with rows and rows and rows and rows of seats. And I'm the only one in this one particular car. And the stop after I get on, this one guy enters and uh, he has tattoos literally everywhere on his neck, on his face. I mean, he, and he has a swagger and I'm a little scared. I mean, I'm a little nervous because this guy is a tough looking guy. And he walks on the train and he's staring right at me. And I'm thinking, please, someone else join me on this train. And in all of the seats, and like I said, there are 150 plus seats, 
he sits across the aisle next to me. And I, I'm really scared now because this guy is clearly someone who has experienced some sort of trouble in his life. And he starts a conversation with me and says, so in prison, guards let us do our thing because they knew what we were doing was right. And talks about in horrible graphic detail how the guards would basically turn over people that have committed certain crimes, crimes that are not very popular even among people who commit crimes, and how these prisoners would do bad things to them. And I realized that this particular guy has a tremendous amount of blood on his hands. And for the next hour, he's just telling me the story. And I, I realized I can't get up. I can't get up and leave because he will force me down. And I'm just, you know, kind of praying that, you know, the train ride's going to end and somebody else will come on the train. And no one else ever does for two hours. About an hour into it, he stops. He finishes all his stories. And I looked at him and I said, so what are you doing now? Because he had told me he was let out of prison that morning. He didn't have a belt on. He showed me his, his slippers that he was wearing. And when I asked him, what are you doing now? He paused and almost stuttered. And I realized there's an opportunity there. There's an opportunity for connection. The bravado in that fleetest of moments was gone. And for the next hour, he told me how he was going back to his girlfriend with whom he had a child. He didn't know whether she would accept him back. She didn't know whether he would let him talk to the baby. And he exposed this tremendous amount of anxiety and fear about this encounter. And I viewed it as an opportunity to connect with him and counsel him and talk about the strength he must have exhibited in prison to make it through such horrible experience and how he did the right thing for at least his survival and how it was up to him now to be trust in the confidence of who he is to do the right thing in terms of rekindling the love with his former girlfriend, if it was possible, or at least rekindling a relationship with his child. And it was this unbelievable moment of of a bond with someone with whom I had nothing in common, who I feared literally 60 minutes prior for my life. And so the train comes to Union Station and I said, I said, do you know how to get to the next train to go to your next destination? And he didn't. And so here's this hardened gang member and we're walking down the train track and I see the right track for him to go on. And I said, well, here's where you should go. And he turns to me and I'm about to shake his hand or something, and he gives me a hug in the middle of a train station with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people passing by. And as he disengages from the hug, he says, pray for me. And he turns around and walked away. And I realized that is a piece of my legacy because I'm hopefully going to have a long legacy after no one remembers my name anymore. Because it lives in the lives I've touched and in, in the lives those people have touched in turn. And I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if he reunited with his girlfriend. I don't know if he was able to establish a relationship with his children. But what if what I had said helped him do just that? And what if he turned his life around because I gave him all sorts of thoughts and ideas about how to find a job and take advantage of some of the natural talents he had built before going to prison to make a living? What if he did start a family with her? And what if he did find a job? And what if he taught his children the things that he believed in his heart were true and they led good lives and they had children who led good lives and nobody from those grandchildren would know who I am I'm, or perhaps his great children would even know who he is. But the impact we had from our time on earth, the impact I created with him 
lives on in his legacy and, and his bloodline to the children and their children's children and their children's children. And to me, that is the legacy. It doesn't cost anything. It could happen in very simple moments. But the impact we have on, the, uh, on others and the impact they have on lives that follow them, that, I believe, is our legacy. Well, and taking the moment, you know, as the observation from the outside of taking that moment of being so afraid, and we've all been there, of being met with someone who seems so different than us, but working through the fear to see them as a human and seeing them as someone who's part of the creation, that takes a lot of courage. Whether you're in a train and then you really have nowhere to go or not, I think there's something beautiful about reaching out and saying, I mean, because really what your word said was, I, I see you, I hear you, you know, you're here and you're as worthy as, as anyone else to be here on this earth. And, and it feels right. like that's some of what's missing in some of the discussions that happen around the, po- the politics right now or whatever. But I think there's that moment where we all have the choice again to say, hey, I see you, we're, we're equal. We're, we're both worthy. Well, what I found particularly fascinating about this election was what most people didn't realize were shared. I mean, I won't get into it, but there's a reason why both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders had such incredibly passionate followings. Yeah. And it was because there was a shared sense of fear by those two different groups about their respective futures. Mm-hmm. In Trump's case, it was the disenfranchised middle-aged group that uh, he was attracted to. And in Bernie Sanders, it was the millennial group that felt disenfranchised. And they both were fearful. And how amazing would it be if in the coming months and coming years, people acknowledge that fear and recognize that commonality that they had? Because we are people. We do think about our future. We do worry that things will be okay. And that right. is a shared fear. And there's so much more that, you know, despite this horrific sense of divisiveness that we all share. And I think that could be the foundation for the coming together that our nation needs to have. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) That's so interesting because that's, uh, people go back and listen, just the previous episode was before we knew the results I was talking about, and it was a solo cast, but basically that same thing that both sides are so afraid And that that's, you know, if we can be gentle and tender and kind to one another and know that the fear is real, we have real fears, but both sides are feeling it. It's not like, you know, it's only one side. It's everyone was afraid of something because whatever the election was going to mean would mean that other people, what, that their vision was not coming to life for the next four years. And they're Mm -hmm. afraid of that. And, And that's hard. But I think there's, if you can make the turn to the, the tenderness and the kindness, then I think you're right. That's that's very much where the healing starts and the mm-hmm. the shared vision starts to come together. Of how do we help each other through the fear? And I think that's our task. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you brought up a great point that I hadn't thought of when, about being on that train, that I listened with an open mind. Despite mm-hmm. my fear of bodily harm, I listened with an open mind. And I'd like to say that was purposeful. I think it was because I didn't have much other choice but to listen, but I did. And at the moment, I sensed commonality because there's commonality with everyone. I I seized that moment. And that became the foundation for the second hour of our discussion. Mm. And I can only hope that, you know, our leaders do that. And then we as people do that with each other, you know, listen with an open mind and and sees that commonality and through that sharedness, that connectedness. And 
you know, we haven't talked about it, but, you know, the power of connection is just overwhelming in creating joy and happiness. And, you know, you could get that connection. I mean, you could get that connection by listening and you can get that connection by focusing on the things that you share together. And once you have that connection, it's this just continuous loop of sharing and experiencing and enjoying those strands, those invisible threads that you share with the other individual. And amen. (laughs) I think that that is so well stated and so such a beautiful observation of the connection. And my hope is that that's where we will, that's where we'll start to settle, right? Is that we see, okay, you're afraid and I'm afraid. And and then from that shared fear or that shared concern, that then we have a shared vision um, and can work towards that. There's a, a quote by Goat that I'll share that just seems so appropriate right now. And what was written was, the world is so empty if one only thinks of mountains, of rivers, and cities. But to know someone who thinks and feels with us and who is close to us in spirit, this makes the earth for us an inhabited garden. Mm. And I think we could find someone close to us in spirit because we are all products of the human condition. We're all wired with similar DNA and the things that give us joy and the things that cause us to be afraid. And, you know, our task is to find that commonality and and experience the joy and happiness that results from finding it. That's such good stuff. I think Goethe is a great place to just say (laughs) that's beautiful. (laughs) Before we, um, yeah, I mean, before we get into the last couple questions, thank you so much. Uh, This is, this has been a really lovely conversation. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I've loved Um, it too. Thank you. Yeah. So where can people find your book? I'll link up to it, but if they want to learn more, where, where can they find you and, and your work? Well, I'm available on Amazon. Suitcase of Happiness is the title of the book, and happiness is spelled H-A-P-P-Y-N-E-S-S, a roadmap to achieve and enjoy your happiest life. And you know, if you're interested in more information, you could go to the website, suitcaseofhappiness.com. Uh, the best way that people have really found me has been on Twitter, at Mark Jaffe. So on Instagram, Mark Jaffe one That's wonderful. Yeah, and I'll link up to all of it. If you didn't have, if you're not somewhere you can write that down right now, um, you can put it on the website. And um, thank you. So the last couple of questions that I ask everyone... I know you have a very full life with many moving parts. What does balance look like for you? And how do you maintain harmony in the midst of everything that's going on? We have so many things that consume our lives. And the way I maintain balance is to establish priority and focus on the things that are important. And that Mm -hmm. to me is balance. If your priority is happiness or joy or connection, then make that your priority in your life. And then other things have to take a backseat to a little bit of a degree. So to me, it's establishing the priorities of what's important and not forgetting those. I mean, clearly as I uh, raised my children, my children were the number one priority. My family was the number one priority. And I think that the relationship I have with them as adults reflects the relationship I had with them as children. And so if that's your priority, you've got to make room for it. And trust me, you know, in the music industry, there is a lot of ways to be busy at concerts and events and all these things that seem so important at the time. But those are the things you can, in effect, give up because you have other priorities in your life. And so the answer is to really figure out your priorities and, and focus on those priorities and make those your choices. 
Oh, I like that a lot. And then the last question is, what are three ways you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Well, I, it, it's easy. I mean, I have 10 pathways that I believe can, can give us happiness. But mm-hmm. the three that I think are the quickest, uh, the first one is to live. I mean, when we go on vacations, we have these amazing experiences and we come back and we tell everybody about it. And I think the the vacation itself becomes the vehicle to have that experience. But I live in Los Angeles. A lot of people come here on vacation. As a matter of fact, I remember one time I went on vacation to Newfoundland and to southeastern Minnesota, where, (laughs) and if you live in southeastern Minnesota or Newfoundland, you'd be thinking, why would you ever come here? Because I thought it was an interesting place. And I created an incredible experience because I lived my life as if I was on vacation because I was. Well, I think it's possible to create joy by living your life like you're on vacation the second you step out of your front door. And the one thing you'll notice is that there's tremendous serendipity when you're on vacation. I mean, Elizabeth Berg said serendipity is just intention unmasked. And if your intention is to live your life like you're on vacation, you'll be shocked at how much serendipity you have as a result of your day-to-day life. The second one is the power of passion. You know, by passionately engaging with your world, you give emphasis to the engagement. And you can engage in anything in passion. I mean, how many times have you heard about the mad scientist who was involved in this incredible experiment that he was doing, and all of a sudden it was 6 in the morning, and he was still in his lab, and he didn't even realize the time had passed? Or if you're passionately involved in a conversation with a friend, and all of a sudden you're at a bar and the bartender says it's 2 a.m. You have to leave. And you realize you got there at eight. What happened to those six hours? Because the power of passion just is amazing. Passion multiplies everything in its path. If you're thinking you're happy, get passionate about something. You'll get five times as happy. Even if you have a task that you don't enjoy, if you engage in it with passion, that's kind of like how people are involved in gamifying everything. They make everything into a game. So it gives it more passionate to the engagement. And so passion can create the spark that ignites any smoldering task into a fire of excitement. I mean, passion has that ability to multiply everything in its path. And so look at your day moving forward and say, okay, which of these activities can I engage with, if not all of them, with a renewed sense of passion? And you'll be amazed at how much happy you are. And the last one is one we've touched on, and it's one that's so important to me. And that is gratitude. When I was a child and we used to go on these great um, natural hikes up mountains, you know, at six, seven, eight years old, and we'd be walking on these trails in Maine and New Hampshire. And I remember my mom would sometimes stop and she'd say, she'd pick up plants and she'd say, smell this, it's sage. And I would smell it and I'd be overwhelmed by the power of that smell. And she'd say, bottle that, Mark. Bottle that moment. So you always have it. And bottle it became this kind of catchphrase in my family for taking a moment and being grateful for it and remembering it and having it crystallize as something you always look back to. And I could still visualize. I mean, I was six, eight years old. I could still visualize being on that trail with my mom telling me to bottle this smell or bottle this sight or bottle this emotion or this feeling that we're having. And gratitude is such a powerful way to have more joy. Um, I'll just read you this other quote because it's one of my favorite ones by an author named Melody Beattie. 
And she said, gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. It could turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, and a stranger into a friend. Gratitude is just amazing in its power. And I would invite everyone to find a moment in their day and stop, bottle it, appreciate it. It will make it so much more poignant and it will make your day so much more meaningful. Yes, I love it. Thank you. And that's such a beautiful way just to end this this really lovely conversation. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. This has really been lovely. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Paula. Thank you for inviting me. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. If you want to get links or find out more about Mark and his book, Suitcase of Happiness, head on over to the show notes at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 63. That's where you can get links to all of Mark's information, including his site and his social media links. And there's a link there to purchase the book, along with the many quotes that we shared. If you are hooked on podcasts and you're thinking you might like to start your own, you can go and enroll in my free podcasting fundamentals class on the site. It will give you my insights on why it's a great fit for your business or blog. And you can get to that link on the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com and look for the drop down at the top nav under classes and workshops, or it's on the right hand side of the page as well. For next week, I will be taking a break in honor of Thanksgiving. And I want to wish you all the happiest and loveliest of holidays. And it's my hope that you'll take some time to reflect on gratitude. I especially love Mark's comment that gratitude is a powerful way to have more joy. I wish you the very happiest of Thanksgivings and that you'll come on back for episode 64. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.